join with me, if you would, in Revelation chapter 19. If you have not been with us, or if you have, here's the overall view of what the future holds as we understand it from the scriptures. We have not been going through Revelation verse by verse, though we have understood how it lays out after Jesus ascended, he said, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come, what was called Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came and dwelt all who trusted in Jesus. And that still happens to this day because we live in what we would define as the church age, where Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Until the time where Jesus, who ascended into heaven, comes back in the clouds and invites all who have trusted him to meet him in the air, in the clouds, called the rapture because that is the being caught up with him. When that takes place, then Revelation 6 through the end of 18 breaks down the tribulation, seven years of the wrath of God being poured out on earth until in many ways just devastation wrecks this planet. And then Christ and we with him return in the second coming. That's Revelation 19, where we're going to look today, which will begin then the thousand-year reign of Christ and his saints on the planet. And then next week, we will look at the great white throne and all that that involves in Revelation 20. So this morning, Revelation 21, excuse me, 19, we're going to look at the second coming and then the millennium. What is this earthly reign of Jesus on earth. What's it going to look like? So join me, Revelation 19, and we will pick up at, after the opening verses in 19, go through what is referred to as the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this feast in heaven. And then verse 11, and I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness, he judges and does what? Wages war. How? In righteousness. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress. Can you imagine this? He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, read it with me, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now we call this the return of Jesus, but actually the name Jesus is never mentioned in that section. Did you notice? So why do we think this is referring to Jesus? <laughs> because of all the names that are said that are identified as Jesus in the rest of scripture. On him is written, he is faithful, true, the king of kings, and lord of lords. All reflections, including uh, the word of God, 
all reflections that this is Jesus who is returning. And as he returns, as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, uh, treading the wine press of the fierce wrath of God, he is crowned with many crowns. This description, again, I believe comes from Revelation chapter 4, where the 24 elders, reflective of the people of God, both in Israel and the Gentiles, who are being given rewards, crowns for their faithfulness in their worship to him. Their words are not enough. And so they take their crowns and they offer them to Jesus because it was actually he who did the work in them and through them. So he is deserving of those crowns. And he has all of these crowns, if you will, on his head as he returns. He's accompanied by an army of saints. Who is that? Okay, there's four of you who know that that's us. <laughs> he comes on a white horse and his army comes with him and they are dressed in white linen as well and they ride on, we ride on white horses as well. Ever ride a horse? A white one? All right, some of you. Might be a first time event for you. Don't have to worry about falling off. You'll be in new bodies that are imperishable so you could fall off and get right back on. You wouldn't have to worry about those broken bones. He's accompanied by the saints all, think about this, all throughout all time who have by faith believed in him. Quite an army. All the centuries of the saints returning with him. And he has a sword did you notice, that comes from his mouth. This is pretty significant. I think when we think of Jesus returning and waging war and he has a sword, we think of someone wielding a sword and riding through in his white horse because we've seen this and swinging swords and it's where the sword is coming from his mouth because I don't think Jesus is frantically, wildly, or even fiercely swinging a sword. What is he doing? He's speaking as he always has. And it's the word of God that will bring uh, the fierce wrath of the justice of God. It's always been the word of God. It was the word of God in the beginning that spoke into existence. It's the word of God. It's the sword that comes from his mouth. And I don't know if you noticed as we read in this text that his robe won't get bloody. This is a maybe, so I'm not even sure it'll be a bloody battle. It'll be a, a one-sided, completely defeating, but I don't know that there's blood flowing, if you will, because again, I don't think there's swinging swords. I think there's spoken words. So a blood that's that's a robe, excuse me, that's already bloody. It makes us think crucifixion, that, that this is Jesus who's by his shed blood that our sin is forgiven, our debt is paid. But I'm not sure about that. And this is now a guess. I always want to make sure we're clear. It's clear that his robe is dipped in blood. 
From what? It does not say. We may initially think, oh, that's the cross, and it could be. But I think there's actually at least a more interesting, maybe even better idea. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham, who became the father of the people of God, the nation of Israel. He was the patriarch. And God chooses him and makes him, I promise, I am going to give you more descendants than the stars you can see in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And it says, watch, Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. I want you to hear that because I want you to understand it has always been by faith that people have been saved. It's not like Old Testament, oh, it was the works that they did, and now we don't have to do works. It's by faith in Jesus. It's always been by faith. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then here's what happens next. God, who makes this covenant with him, says, and I'm going to give you the land to possess it. And for whatever reason, Abraham, who has now believed, is not sure about the land. And he goes, how do I know you're going to give the land? And so God tells Abram to do what humans would have done then to make a covenant. And to make a covenant that they would do what they said to one another. And the covenant was sealed. It was signed, if you will, not on a piece of paper, but by taking a heifer, three-year-old, a goat, three-year-old, and a ram, three-year-old, not baby, three-year-old. So that's some big animals and two birds and cut those huge animals in half. Not this way, this way. And split them in half. And you can imagine now all the blood from cutting Two huge animals like that in half. Can you imagine? And the point is, two people who are making this covenant are to walk through the animals with the understanding, if I don't do what I said, do to me what we did to the animals. That's, you better mean it. (laughs) And so God says, I'll make this covenant with you. Abraham splits the animals and then goes to sleep and never walks through. Who walks through? Only the Lord. And it would seem, this is a guess, the pre-incarnate Christ. Why? Because the covenant that God makes with us is not dependent upon our faithfulness. It's only dependent upon his faithfulness. It is a covenant of grace that he is faithful even when we are faithless. You see, if Abram's awake, and, he, and I'm calling him Abram sometimes because that's truly his name. His name hadn't been changed yet. Abraham later. If Abram would have walked through as part of that covenant, 
He'd have never kept it. Only God walked through. And he kept it. And if you can imagine, this is the picture that I get from Revelation 19. If you can imagine him walking God, the pre-incarnate Christ, walking through a robe dipped in, in blood. I think that's, if nothing else, just fascinating. Because now he comes back on a right white horse to where? To the place that he had said to Abraham. I'm going to give you this land. He doesn't come back to another place. He comes back to the place that he promised. It's, this is in some sense God fill, fulfilling completely his promise when he had walked through the divided animals in Genesis 15 with the return of Christ to the planet to fully, fully and completely possess it and to reign over it. His blood, his robe, already bloody. Not from the battle, but because of the covenant he had made. Then I saw, verse 17, back to the text, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which comes from the mouth. See, that's why I think the word comes from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So in this second coming of Jesus, has he treads again to the, the wine press of the fierce wrath of God he executes all his enemies by his word. I don't, well, in the Gospels, Jesus is out in the boat, and the disciples think we're going to perish, we're going to die, we're going to sink. And what should Jesus say to the wind and the waves? Be still. And they immediately stop. So it's the, the word of the Lord. So what does he say in this moment when he returns? It doesn't tell us. But you can imagine. He could simply say, justice. Or the end. Or in a completely different what he said before. It is finished. You see, it's, it's the sword that comes from his mouth that brings about the end of all who failed 
to repent. Do you remember two weeks ago when we read, in spite of all that, that was happening to the earth and all that was happening to people, that it said repeatedly, but they refused to repent. They refused to change their mind and believe in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus. And so all are executed by his word. And the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire alive. This is the end for them. They had, if you will, their run in the tribulation, and now this is the end. In their permanent, eternal place of torment, the lake of fire, where they are not annihilated, they're thrown alive in there to suffer eternally which leaves only who of the unholy trinity left? It only leaves whom? It only leaves Satan. So join me in now Revelation 20, and we'll see God deal with him. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So in case you're not sure who he's talking about, he names him from every angle you could imagine. The dragon, the serpent, devil, Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Until... The thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. The they, as we'll see, I think is, is we who return with him. We move from returning with him as the army that follows him from heaven, and now we will rule with him, including, and, see, I don't think this, they, is the same as this. It's they, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received a mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Implied there, I believe, is also with the they, us. Who's he talking about in this extended section here? Those who did believe in Jesus in the midst of the tribulation and were killed, martyred because of that belief. So there will be in this thousand years a physical reign of Jesus that's going to last a thousand years. Now, you may ask, and and not everybody believes this, so I want to acknowledge that. Not everybody thinks that this is a literal thousand years. I actually think this is a literal thousand years. 
I think there was seven years of tribulation. I think there were seven letters to seven churches. And I think there'll be a thousand year reign. I think once you start going down the path of, well, some, some numbers in Revelation are symbolic and some numbers aren't, then who gets to decide which ones are and which ones aren't? I think there are seven churches, seven letters, seven years, and a thousand year reign. During that time, what will be dramatically different on earth is not only that Christ will be present and reigning, but that Satan is imprisoned during that time. In other words, the father of lies, the one who deceives, is no longer able to practice, if you will. He has been quadruply secured, chained, thrown in a put, in the pit, shut, and then that was sealed. Totally out of the picture, engaged in life as we know it now. Imprisoned. What a difference, right? Jesus is physically here. Jesus is reigning. Satan cannot do his deal of deceiving. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Who are the rest of the dead? Well, we know who participated in this first resurrection. All who have believed in Jesus. The next one is what we'll look at next week. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. No blessing in the next resurrection. That's next week. The blessing here is they who have participated in the first resurrection over these, the second death has no power. What do we talk about? Once we are raised with Christ and we receive imperishable, immortal bodies, death will never be our experience again, even during the time of the millennium. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Who? All who have taken part in the first resurrection, including all who were raptured, including all who were raised because of their martyrdom during the tribulation before the millennium begins. So his thousand-year reign on earth while Satan is in prison, we will participate. All who have been part of the first resurrection are going to reign with him. So, is that something you go, oh, wow, I'm looking forward to that? Are you? You're not sure? <laughs> yeah, this is when, what's it going to be like in the millennium? Here's what we know. What do we know? Christ is going to be physically present, ruling, and reigning. In other words, he came the first time as a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He came humble in order to die. This time he comes to rule and to reign. It'll be a completely different 
expression of the life of Jesus on this planet from the Gospels. Completely different. So, will that make a difference in this world? That, that Christ is present and he is ruling? Will it make a difference that Satan, the liar, the deceiver who has come to steal, kill, and destroy is locked up and has no play about what's happening in the world? Will that make a difference? Yeah, that'll be a huge difference. And, and then finally, will it make a difference that everyone who rules, everyone who has authority on the planet will be perfect and righteous? Would that make a difference in this world? Never a lie, never injustice done by those who are ruling and reigning because those are the saints. Can you imagine? See, if you're not looking forward to it, I hope that that trifecta that I just described to you makes you go, wow, what a difference life will be when Christ is present, ruling and reigning physically, Satan is out of the picture, and all authority is fully and completely righteous. That'll be a whole different world. Now, uh, Dwight Pentecost who some of you may, that, may know that name. He, longtime professor, almost 60 years at Dallas Theological Seminary, a guy that, that we would align ourselves with, says uh, there's more information in the Bible about the millennium than any other period in Scripture. Actually, we only had about 10 verses on it. So what's he talking about? What he says is this. Many of them are tucked away in the Old Testament where you would not expect to find them. So uh, I'm not going to dive deep into this. Here's what you need to understand. Most of what we understand about the millennium is actually a, what is understood to be Old Testament prophecy in the reign of God on earth. But it never, here's the but, but it never says in the Old Testament, and in the millennium, oh, and in the millennium, oh, and in the millennium, it never says that, and so... Here's where I want to be fair. Not everyone who would say all of those Old Testament prophecies have their fulfillment during this thousand-year reign. All right? So we're going to run into other people, and some of them are in the room, who would say, I, I do believe in Jesus. I have trusted in him. I do believe I'll return with him. But I don't know that there's going to be a thousand-year millennial reign the way we are describing if if indeed all of those old testament prophecies are ha, have their greatest fulfillment in the millennium now, now we have more specifics by studying the millennium david jeremiah who would align himself with 
Dwight Pentecost would say, we discover that lifetimes will be extended. There will be peace in the animal kingdom. The lion will lay down with the lamb. We've sang that, right? And there will be peace among mankind. All the hostilities that have been, have been a part of our world will be gone. How peaceful is it going to be in the millennium? Egypt and the Assyrians and the Jews are all going to be allies. Think about that. That would make the news. Egyptians, Assyrians, and Jews, all allies, they will work together in cooperation. Here's one of these passages. Isaiah 2.4 tells us that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall there be war anymore. It seems so. Hope so. Maybe so. You see what I'm saying? If that's true about the, if that's referring to the millennium, then we can have more specific. There will not be any war and there will be lifetime extended. Uh, here's some more. It appears that lifespans will revert to those of the era before the flood when humans lived to be more than 900 years old. Now again, that's not a reference to those who are believers who have returned with Christ because 900 years is no different than nine days to us because our bodies are imperishable. So this is a reference to those who came to Christ in the tribulation, were not killed in the tribulation, but are now living in the millennium, but not in glorified, resurrected bodies. But a return because what we know to be true, what we know is Jesus is going to physically reign, Satan is going to be locked up, and there will be righteousness ruling the earth. A return, if you will, to life as God had intended it on this planet when people lived for 900 years. Which is why, what we'll see next week, there could be this massive, for this thousand years, population explosion because people are procreating, but no one's dying. Here's one of those passages. Isaiah 65, 20 says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. That which, some of our most sorrowful, sad moments when a baby only lives a day or two. And think, when they wrote that then, much more frequent than now because of medical advancement. It would have been a common occurrence. Infants dying, not surviving. It would have been true for many, many families that part of their story would have been, oh, we lost our son at seven days old. Oh, we lost our son at three days old. Oh, our little girl died after 12 days because not the medical now. We still see it. The idea in the millennium, no more shall an infant from there 
live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. No 30-year-olds to cancer. No 58-year-olds, because I've not fulfilled my days as far as I know yet. <laughs> Dying of a heart attack. Disease will be abolished. The crisis of death will be experienced only by those individuals who rebel against the law of the kingdom and the king of kings. The ordinary hazards of physical life will be under the direct control of the one whose voice even the wind and the waves obey. So is all of that going to be true? Maybe so, hope so, think so. But what do we know so? I want to be super clear about this. All that I just described would be our understanding of what the millennium will hold. But we could be wrong. But this we will not be wrong about. Because this, it does say about the thousand year reign. Christ will rule. Satan will be locked up. And all who rule and reign with him will be righteous. And if that's my baseline... It's going to be good. How good, how it actually works out, we'll get to see. But I have no fear that, like we said last week, I have no fear that we're going to go, oh, wow, I thought it had been better than this. Because <laughs> you've done that. You've paid for a vacation, and you got there, and you went, oh, wow. I remember we got there, and I thought, man, I thought the beach was going to be prettier. There will be no millennial, ah, I give it like four stars on TripAdvisor. When Christ is ruling and righteousness is in charge and Satan is out of the picture, just think about that trifecta there. That means, that means life flourishes. Because Righteousness brings blessing. The righteousness of God brings blessing. And it's Satan who steals, steals and kills. And, and when he's gone, there's going to be life. It's not going to be heaven. Heaven is in two weeks. You don't want to miss heaven in two weeks. <laughs> so that's the new heaven and the new earth. But it's going to be significant upgrades from what we experience right now. You see, I don't think our world is getting better. But that doesn't mean that what we look for in the millennium shouldn't make a difference now. See, along this whole time, we've asked the question, so what? And I want to make sure we get, there's a so what, a surprising so what for now because of what the millennium brings. In a really unusual place. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As you turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul writes this, he's writing a church in Corinth, new believers who have a number of things that are going wrong in how this church functions. And in the opening chapters, he confronts some genuine problems in the church. 
And then in the rest of the book, he answers questions that they have asked them. It's one of my favorite books in the New Testament because it is so clear. Here's problems, he addresses them. Here's answers to your questions. One of the problems he addresses in 1 Corinthians 6, and this matters for now, is the problem of lawsuits among believers. Christians suing other Christians. Look what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What's he talking about? What's he talking about? He's saying, don't you know that there's a time coming that that we are going to return with Christ and it's going to be our responsibility to rule and to govern the world? If the world is to be judged, to be ruled, to be governed by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? You may go, what are you talking about? I'm simply saying this. Because of what we will do, should dramatically impact what we do now. That's his reasoning. If we're going to rule the world, then why in the world are Christians suing other Christians and taking it downtown to the courthouse? Why not show up at church and say, we have a problem. Anybody? Yes. Is there not somebody in the church who has enough wisdom, righteous wisdom, that can decide that? Well, let me acknowledge, before I came here, I didn't realize the Bible said this stuff. And I have watched, in my 30 plus years at CFC, I've watched this instruction take place where a believer had a, a dispute with another believer and they didn't file it. They came here and said, is there an elder or two who would listen to each side and give us a ruling and we'll do whatever you say. Because we believe that there's wisdom in the righteousness here that's not downtown. One of my favorite moments. Two guys came. They're back in what used to be a conference room. They shared with two of our leaders their situation. Our two leaders listened. They said, all right, let's go have some conversation. Just the two of us. They went to another office. They are sorting out what they think righteousness would do in that situation. And as they're talking, knock on the door. It's the two guys who had the dispute. And they said, hey, you know, just in talking it out to you, we figured it out. We're, we know what we need to do. <laughs> that doesn't happen downtown. What's my point? But what we will do then 
ought to dramatically impact how we live now. The church, the people of God, ought to be known in this community for their wisdom and for their peace and for their love and pursuit of righteousness. In fact, Paul goes on and he says, in fact, that we're even dealing with this, it's to the detriment of the church. Why not just be wronged? Why not for the sake of peace, just take one on the chin? That's what Christ did. You see, what we do then ought to determine how we live now. And one of the, the deepest things that I think that grieves the spirit of God is when the church that should be known by peace, love, and righteousness is actually known by a watching world to be petty and picky and ugly and divided. This is why Jesus and his prayer the night before he is crucified says, may they be one as we are one. This is why the scripture says, beyond all these things, beyond humility, beyond kindness, beyond compassion, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let peace, the peace of Christ, rule in your hearts. It's Colossians chapter 3. We, we, because of what we will do then, ought to be people who live in peace and unity now. Why? <laughs> because we are, we're the body now. We're the body of Christ now. When we reign with him, we will reflect as we are spread across this earth. And how's this going to look? I have no idea. I do know this, that the world is going to be a wreck. This earth is going to be a wreck from the tribulation. And I think what may be happening during this thousand years as we rule and reign in righteousness under the leadership and the lordship and the kingship of Jesus, that we will be restoring and healing this ravaged planet. And as we do that, we will do that again in righteousness as a reflection, as a carrying out of his kingship. It, should that not be true now? You see it? You getting what I'm saying? It ought to be true now. Now, gentleman said to me on Thursday night, yeah, but... <laughs> We're still sinners now. Correct. True? True? Yes. What else is true? <laughs> the Spirit of God lives in me to do the work of God through me. See, I'm not, I'm not discounting this. And I'm not saying we're going to do it perfectly now. We will do it perfectly then. But this ought to be closer to this than this. You with me? <laughs> 
that makes a difference. His simple rationale is, what the world's going on, people? You don't look anything like it's going to look in the millennium. And listen, the church now ought to be a foreshadowing of the world then. Because righteousness is going to rule then. And righteousness ought to rule. If not in this world, it ought to rule where? In the church. In the body of Christ. In the Christian family. See, it makes a difference now. This is if that's the game, the millennium, that's the game, this is practice. <laughs> and we need to up our practice, <laughs> if you will. Because we will reign with Christ because we are his body now. Why will he be king then? Why is Jesus going to rule as king in the millennium? Very simply. Because <laughs> he is king now. If you're thinking, oh man, I can't wait till the millennium because then Jesus is going to be king. Uh, newsflash. He's king now. Yes, he is king now. Is his kingship being exercised fully now? Not in this world, but it ought to be in my heart, in your heart, and in your home, and in this church. You see what I'm saying? That which is then is intended to be at least now among us. It'll be the whole world then. It ought to be now for us. So let me bring it the whole way back to Financial Peace University. <laughs> Seriously, listen. You know what the scripture says? The borrower is slave to the to the lender. In other words, the borrower has a master. And Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You're going to pick one of them. And then he says, you're not going to serve God and money. The reason, and I'm so grateful, that the reason this church in its entire history has never had debt is because debt invites a master. And this church has never had to wrestle with obeying the master of debt and obeying the master who is, is, is king. You follow? What freedom we have had as a church to live under the headship of Jesus because we have not been a slave to debt. That's what we'd want for you. Financial Peace University is not about how to get rich. It's fundamentally how to rid yourself of a master so you can have one master to live for. And his name is Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, faithful and true. So it's going to be full then. It ought to be growing now. The world's not getting better, but I ought to be growing more like Jesus.
This world's not getting better, but we ought to be more like Jesus individually and as a church. The warm-up for the millennium. Why don't you bow with me? Give you just a moment to declare Jesus is king in your life. And where it's not functionally happening, where something else is ruling, maybe it is debt, maybe it's fear that's ruling, maybe it's lust that's ruling, maybe it is greed that's ruling. That you would take a moment to simply say, Father, I repent of that. I change my mind. I want that to be the only master in my life is your son, the Lord Jesus. Submit to his leadership in my life. Husbands and fathers, would you just invite the Lord to lead you that you would pastor your home under the Lordship of Jesus. Wives, mothers, would you submit to the Lord? And as you submit to the Lord, commit yourself again to submitting to the husband that the Lord has given you. And if there's brokenness, instead of demanding your right, would you right now just relinquish that right? Lay it down. And put on love, the perfect bond of unity. Lord Jesus, where you rule and righteousness rules, life prospers. And I pray that we would increasingly live in the abundant life you've made for us. Thank you for what only is to come, but thank you for who you are now. Let's stand and declare together that he is above all.
get to do it not on our own strength but in the power of the spirit and that's good news friends so let's go today and as we as we were with people this afternoon let's show the love of jesus to them and we hope you have a blessed week and we'd see you next time around okay have a good one